No Gray Zone podcast is a frank and honest conversation on topics related to sexual abuse, harassment, child exploitation, and domestic and workplace violence. The opinions are our own, based on years of experience as special victims prosecutors. Any study, book, or product we mention is based on our own review and are not sponsored. Links and titles can be found in the podcast notes. You can also learn more at rightresponseconsulting.com. Listener discretion is advised. I'm just good at caring too much. I'm just good at caring too much. Is it too much to ask that you be all mine? I never was good at sharing. I'm just good at caring. Welcome back. I'm Catherine Marsh. And I'm Melissa Hotmeyer, and this is No Grace One Podcast. As we continue to discuss intimate partner violence during October, we are excited to have on No Gray Zone Amanda Tenorio, a survivor and an advocate. Amanda is a survivor of domestic violence whose story includes physical abuse against herself and her son, and a more, more than three year legal battle against her abuser. Amanda is also a public speaker and an advocate. She currently works at the University of Maryland Medical Center Shock Trauma as a domestic violence intervention specialist. Amanda and I also share a special connection in that I had the privilege of getting to know her while prosecuting against her abuser. Um, we've also provided national training on how, how prosecutors and law enforcement can do better. And so welcome, Amanda. Thank you for having me, you guys. We are thrilled to have you. And while Melissa already knows your story and you two have worked together to share your story before, I and the listeners don't. So I'm hoping maybe you can take a little bit of time and tell us about your story. Sure. So there's a lot of twists and turns in this story, and it's pretty confusing because my story includes legal battles in Virginia and Maryland. But like with so many other cases, it's not cut and dry. It started in Virginia. It went to Maryland and then it was back in Virginia. So sometimes I find because I know my story so well, I confuse people when I when I share it. So I'm going to try my best to give you guys the sequence of events that would make sense to understand why it was so hard for me to leave that relationship and to help people really understand when they look and say, well, why didn't you leave this time? Or, well, this time seemed like a door was open, but you didn't take it. You can understand that it was, there were so many things going on in my life, just besides the daily living was just trying to survive from this person. I met my abuser in January of 2009. I found out years later that he had actually been stalking me before we, had, before we became a couple. And when I looked back on that, I never knew that my entire relationship. And I considered myself fairly intelligent, but went to school. I have an education. I thought I knew about life. I thought I knew about people. And to look back on it and realize that I ended up in a relationship with a man who started out as my stalker. I can't really put it into words, but to say it's a very creepy feeling. It was a, a quick, intense relationship. For me, it it started immediately, but I think for him, he had spent weeks or maybe months kind of tracking me um, and feeling like he already knew me. By our 
third month together in this relationship is when the abuse became physical. Looking back on it, I can say there was definitely a lot of red flags with emotional and verbal abuse, but I sort of minimized it as like, maybe he's an angry person. I was going through a divorce and I had two children. So maybe that was a lot for him to take on, you know, the insecurities of me possibly getting back with my husband, me having children. There was a little bit of an age difference, um, which he would eventually use against me. I was seven years older than him. So I took all of that into consideration. He's younger. He's learning about life. And I think at this point, I can say when I look back on it, I kind of wanted to not mother him, but I think I was like a mother figure to him. And I, I looked at him in that way when I look back on it is. I was rescuing him and I thought, you know, I could be the one to help him and I could fix him and I could change him. But by my birthday, so by May of 2009, and it was on the night that we went out for my birthday was the first assault. That was, that night, he had assaulted me for about 14 hours, um, which was really like the first time I could say I've ever been in a relationship that was so violent. To think about it, when it ended, I was done. When I finally got out of that house after 14 hours of him beating me with um, with a belt, with a towel rack, you know, he pulled the, the towel rack right out of the bathroom and would juice that on me. He broke my nose trying to suffocate me. So he would pinch my nose and put a blanket down my throat to try and suffocate me with my kids all in the, the bedroom next door. So when I finally got out of the house the next day and the neighbors had called the police because they witnessed him continuing to beat me at my son's bus stop, I was willing to talk to the police. I gave them permission to take pictures. I wrote a written statement like they asked me to. I I was fully cooperative because in my mind, the police are there to help you. And once the police come, they rescue you. But that's not how that ended up going. He had fled the scene. And when he fled, he took my car and my wallet and my house keys and my phone. So I had no access and unless I was going to be back in contact with him. So when the police came, the one thing I did refuse was to go to the hospital for medical attention. And only because my daughter, who was two, was not allowed to ride in the ambulance with me. So now that's when you start to realize how isolated you are. I have a close-knit family, but my family was 12 hours away in another state. I didn't have any friends, didn't have any coworkers because he controlled my time. He controlled everything about my life at that point. And it wasn't until then that you really realize how bad the isolation is. So when the police are telling me, you have to leave her with a neighbor if you're going to go to the hospital, but I don't have a neighbor I can leave my child with, then I'm going to refuse going to the hospital because the only other option is to get CPS involved, which I did not want to do. So they, they eventually left my home. No one ever talked to me about a protective order. They didn't tell me what he was going to be charged with, when, what they were going to do next. All they said is, we'll be in touch with you. And they left. And I'm at a house now with no car, no phone, no way to communicate with anybody. And then, of course, as soon as he leaves, the, the officer leaves, Brian's mother shows up to my house. She is a typical enabling mother. But when she came, she said she knew where her son was. We all needed to sit down and talk. She really um, worked hard at convincing me that this is 
this is love. This is your guys' love. So don't let anybody else tell you what love feels like. Don't let anybody else tell you what your relationship should be. My son has never loved anybody so much that he's gotten to the point where he's put his hands on a person. So that's how you know that this is love. And I looked at his parents. I see them as role model examples of relationships. And she must know what she's talking about. Even though this was foreign to me, maybe what I grew up with isn't necessarily normal. That's just my normal. So she talked me down and convinced me to give her son a chance to explain himself. But I still was standing firm in that I was not going to tolerate him putting his hands on me ever again. And so when we when we did meet up with him, he was apologetic. He cried. He took all the blame. He did everything right to say, I'm so sorry. And this is why I did it. I, you know, being in jail for the last month has really done something to me. And I do love you so much. And I don't ever want to do anything like this again. And I'm going to make this right. So he said all the right things. And that was when I decided I didn't want to go forward with the court case. I didn't want him to be arrested. But unfortunately, by the time it's in the police's hands, I don't have that choice. So I then learned how the system really works. He, he's going to go to jail. I can't do anything about that. So he, he continued to try and fight the case with me. So I stood by him. I said, don't worry, we'll work this out and I'll, you know, I'll be in your corner. And to me, I was thinking that was the right thing to do because I can prove to him that I deserved better than what he had done for me, what he had done to me. And I could, once again, I could fix him. I could help him make this right. In May, he was then locked up for the assault case against me because there was an open warrant. It was a misdemeanor. Again, by this time, I was, I was in the mindset that Bryant and I were going to make this work. It was him and I against the world. But also I knew because it was a misdemeanor, it was going to be a slap on the wrist. So he wasn't going to face any time. And hopefully like he would forgive me for letting it get this, this far. So now I've taken myself to the place where I'm taking a lot of blame for what happened. I shouldn't have let it get that far out of control. And when, um, He did go, he was in jail for a couple of weeks before he finally bonded out. And during those two weeks, he would call my mother and have her call me on three-way. And my mother did not know at the time what had really happened. The story we had come up with and given her was the same story we were going to continue to go forward with, which was that I was assaulted at a nightclub by a group of girls, that these girls came out of nowhere, jumped me for no reason. And he just happened to be away at the bathroom or wherever he was. He wasn't there to help me. So she was okay with letting him call her from jail and then connect me on three-way. But during these calls, the emotions were all over the place. Sometimes he was apologetic and he missed me and he cried and it was so hard in there without me. And other times it was, you better hope that this case goes away. You better do everything right in court. Do you know what's going to happen to you next time if this doesn't go my way? Don't forget what happened with the witnesses in the armed robbery case. And I never knew what that meant, but him and his mother would constantly remind me that people who cross Bryant disappear. So just remember, you had four witnesses in these armed robbery cases that nobody's found. What do you think is going to happen to Amanda if she doesn't play her cards right? 
So I was taking all this in and it was confusing because I was being threatened, but I was also being promised that he would change. And I feared him, but I loved him. And I hoped that I was wrong, but I hoped that I was right. I was all over the place. And I'm still trying to take care of my kids. I'm still trying to work. I'm still trying to live the daily stresses of our, of a normal life, so to speak. So by the time we did go to court, um, this was in Virginia. I had never spoke to a domestic violence advocate. I did not have a specialized domestic violence prosecutor. The police officers involved in the case never kept in contact with me until the day of court. Now we go to court, Bryant has his mother, Bryant has his own attorney, and I'm there with nobody, but I'm there as a witness for the state, but accompanied by my abuser. So when the prosecutor asked to speak to me alone, I felt like I didn't really have a choice but to say yes. And so the prosecutor and the arresting officer took me into a room. Again, I did not have an attorney. And I was told that they knew I was going to try to change my story. They knew that I was back together with him. And so they were hoping that they could convince me by telling me if he gets out, if he comes home today, he's going to kill you next time. So you have to do the right thing today. You have to go in there and you have to stick to your story that you originally gave us. And my response to them was, he's being charged with a misdemeanor. I don't know a lot, but I know enough to know he's not going to get any jail time. If I don't stay on his side, you guys need to have a body bag outside for me because I won't make it home to see my kids tonight. I cannot. And I kept, I begged with them to not put me on the stand. I told them I cannot stand in front of him and say what he did to me. I won't make it through the rest of the day, but they put me on the stand anyways. So they knew what I, what my story was going to be because I told them in the room. And when I left that room crying, of course, Bryant and his mother and his attorney are there to save me and rescue me. And now it's turned to where the prosecutor and the police officer are the bad guys. Look what they're doing to you. They're not trying to help you. We're the ones here trying to help you. So I did go in the courtroom. I was called and I gave the story that I had given to my mother, which was that I had been jumped by a group of girls. I also didn't realize at the time, um, because I came from a state where we have a court of record and everything is is recorded, but in Virginia, you have to know enough to know to request a court reporter for the hearing. So there was never a record of this hearing, but I did say on the stand what I told the officer and the prosecutor, which was that it was not Bryant. And the judge said that he did not necessarily believe me, but there was nothing he could do to to force me to say differently. And he told the the prosecutor, regardless of if we believe her or not, this is her story. This is the only person to tell us what happened. And she's telling us what happened. And I know that this is different than what she told you guys on the day that he was arrested, but this is the story we're going with. And so when he dismissed the case against Brian, he also advised the prosecutor and the police officer that the, he did not want to see me in his courtroom on the other side of the table. So I didn't know at the time what that meant, but looking back on it, I've realized he was warning them that they should not come and try to file charges against me. I don't want to interrupt, but I, I do want to talk. It's so important. And after even all these years um, that we've known each other and that I know about this case, I think 
you know, one of the things that has stuck with me is the fact this police officer and this prosecutor did ultimately decide to charge you. And we all know, you know, because we're advocates for survivors of domestic violence is that this is such a barrier for, for victims to come forward again, for victims to call the police again, for victims to be believed the next time they call the police. And I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about that experience, because I think it's something that a lot of people don't realize happens and is still happening in this country. It happened in Virginia. You and I were talking about it, I think last week, it happened in Virginia again, just a few weeks ago. And you hit it right on the head. They didn't even threaten me with it. That's the thing is I was never threatened ahead of time. Not, And I, I say that only to say, even if they had threatened me, I was still going to go and do things the way I did them. But I had never considered that as a possibility. And so when I did ultimately find out that I was charged, I found out after I was discharged from the hospital in Prince George's County for the case that you ultimately took. And I found out by an officer calling my number blocked, coincidentally, the same exact day that I was discharged from the hospital to tell me that there was a warrant for my arrest. He knew I was in Maryland, but that the warrant was in Virginia. I needed to surrender myself. And my mother took the phone and was not going to let me surrender myself. This was a holiday weekend. It was going to be a four-day weekend. I was in bad shape from the the next assault that Brian committed against me. And she was like, I don't even know why you're being charged with a crime right now, but you're not going to go sit in jail for four or five days before you even get in front of a judge. That was when I shut down to the police. I mean, I did ultimately turn myself in the next week after the holiday was over and after my mother's birthday, because I didn't want to miss her birthday with her. But I shut down at that point because like you said, why would I trust the police now? I, because I didn't help you guys convict someone that you should have been able to convict without my help. Now I'm the enemy in your eyes. You tried to tell me that you did all this because you knew what this man was capable of doing to me. However, they put me in a box where I couldn't call the police anymore. And anytime I did, he would immediately tell them she's been charged with this crime or she's been convicted of filing a false police report was the crime. I I was charged with falsely summoning law enforcement and filing a false police report. And I was convicted of filing a false police report, which is a it's a misdemeanor. But apparently in the eyes of the law, it's a pretty serious misdemeanor. A crime of moral turpitude is some people look at that as like, you have no credibility. We don't trust you. What's wrong with you? Why would you call the police and say one thing and then go to court and say another thing? How can we ever believe you again? So at that point, there were times when I said, there's no point in calling. There were times when I did call because it was a serious incident. And as soon as he got to the police and said, look up her record, the way they perceived me completely changed. So it didn't matter if they were looking at me with bruises all over my body and a black eye, they might've believed that he had just assaulted me, but they didn't trust that I was going to go to court and do the right thing or say the right thing. So I was sort of in a catch 22 after that, where I didn't have an option in my mind. I didn't have an option to get the police to help me anymore. You've addressed so many things that Melissa and I see so often in intimate 
partner violence where you're kind of painted into a corner. You don't have a lot of options. And I think you've hit on a few from those who enable the abuser. So just the first part of the conversation is it's because he loves you this much that he laid hands on you. It's the fact that you were so isolated. So outside of Bryant and Bryant's family, you didn't have a network of your own to rely on or to help you. And I think one of, there's two things that you really mentioned with regard to how the system got it wrong. And since you have some really good personal insights now and being part of the system on the other end was from the point of the first abuse until you walked in that courtroom, nobody reached out to you. So Mm -hmm. you didn't have a victim advocate reach out to you. Nobody from the prosecutor's office reached out to you. Law enforcement didn't reach back out to you. What difference do you think it makes when services are immediately provided or available for somebody who has suffered from intimate partner violence? That right there starts to close the gap on the social isolation. Because if I don't have a network of support, I don't have friends or family in the immediate area, but I have a victim advocate, I have a prosecutor or a police officer that I can just talk to. So then I know what's going to happen when I go to court. This is what you should expect. This is what is going to happen. These are some of your options. What do you want us to know from you? What do you want to see at the end of all of this? So you start to, that's starting to close the gap of that isolation. I'm not just walking into court with the to- everything's unknown, like to paint some expectations. And that was a A big part of a lot of the conversations that Melissa and I had was, okay, these are the charges and these are why the charges are what they are. And this is what's going to happen when you go to court. What do you want to see at this point? So every step of the way telling me what what I should expect, what would I like, and helping me to set my expectations. And I think by doing that, if they had done that the first time in Virginia, I would have had more trust in them, that I was a person to them, that they wanted to help, that this was not just about protecting this arrest or protecting this officer's reputation or his career, but what he was saying to me when he said to me, I'm worried about you next time he's going to kill you, I might have actually been able to start to trust him. But when you say that to me, and that's the first time I've really ever sat down and had a conversation with you, and I have my abuser, who has been talking to me every single day for the past month, not all of it's good, but I have more trust in him. I'm more familiar with him. So a lot of victims will say the fear of the unknown, and there are so many unknowns, and the court system itself is an unknown. But at least if somebody who's in the court all day, every day could help make this a little bit more familiar for me and for any other victim coming in, that starts to open up a conversation where I'm probably going to be less reluctant to move forward with the case than what I had been the first time. And I know I'm going to jump ahead a little bit, but I think what you said makes me want to talk about Detective Wallace, because I know when we've talked, she is really what kind of turned it around for you in terms of trusting law enforcement again and, and feeling like you were safe in telling your story and in, in moving forward with leaving Bryant, but ultimately also, you know, helping the prosecution in Virginia and then in our case in Maryland, you know, prosecute him. So 
can you tell us just a little bit about, you know, how that really, how Detective Wallace was able to build that relationship with you and, and you know, how that affected kind of your story with Bryant? Yeah, I was lucky to have her because the first time I met with her, it was not a good interaction. And I know she'll remember it. I lied to her. The first time I met her, the only reason I was willing to speak to her is because Bryant had been arrested and charged with an assault, but because I had just been convicted of filing a false police report. And my 911 call was very confusing in that I said, there's a man in my house who's not supposed to be here, which was true. He was a man in my house and he was not supposed to be there per my custody order. So they kind of escalated things like this was a hostage situation and they felt like I blew it out of control. So they were looking at my record and also considering filing additional charges against me. But what they did was say, if you will speak to our domestic violence detective, maybe we can sort through some things. So with a lot of persuading from my mother, I did go in and I spoke to Melissa Wallace. And she told me, I don't believe your story. Um, Because by then I had told her it wasn't Brian. He had just broken into the house because he knew I got assaulted at the 7-Eleven. I was always getting assaulted at the 7-Elevens, just so you guys know. I'd never been assaulted before Brian at 7-Eleven and never since him. But during my 14 months, I was always assaulted at seven months. And she told me that she did not believe my new story, that she believed something else was going on. But if I wasn't ready to open up, then that was fine. And you know, I'm how she said it was, I'm sure we'll be seeing each other again. So I, I lied to her, but she didn't come after me. She didn't put charges on me. And that case ended up getting continued and continued and continued for a while. And Bryant ended up getting into some other legal matters. He was actually shot during a drug deal robbery that went wrong. So the assault case from me in August of 2009 kept getting pushed back because he was shot in October of 2009. Fast forward all the way to January, finally go to court. I've now talked to this detective. We haven't really kept in close contact, but I think behind the scenes, she was talking to the officers. She was talking to the prosecutor because when I went to court, again, I went with Brian, but the the prosecutor and the officer approached me and they said, what would you like to happen today? And I said, I want the charges dropped. I'm not testifying against him. And they said, okay, well, we can't just drop the charges, but what we could do is we can no cross them. And they explained it to me. So now I was starting to like have a little bit more trust in the system again, even though I was still with Brian. Now I was seeing, okay, you guys are hearing what I'm saying. I don't want to testify. You're not forcing me to testify. I want the charges dropped. You can't just drop them like it never happened. But basically how they explained it to me is when we know process, it just kind of gets put in a case for a year as long as he doesn't get into any more trouble, this will just disappear like it never happened. So it was a win-win for me. Now Bryant's happy again. He, He got away with this. I didn't have to testify against him. And we both just go home together. Melissa and I started a relationship where I lied to her, but she understood it. She kind of educated me on why I was doing what I was doing, almost like she was planting the seed for me. And then it wasn't again until February of 2010. So by then five or six months had passed before we met again. And how we met again was he had assaulted me in early 2010. 
I was able to get out of the house after he left that day and I was able to get myself to the hospital. But when I got to the hospital, the doctors and the nurses kept asking me what happened. I had a lot of injuries and my story wasn't making sense to them. So one of the nurses called the police on her own without asking me and the police came and I wanted to be cooperative, but I still was hesitant. So I did agree to talk to them. I did agree to let them take photographs, but I refused to write anything. I said, I'm not writing a report. I'm not letting you record anything, but you can take pictures and you can do whatever else you have to do. But when they started getting very suspicious um, of my neighbor who brought me to the hospital because I had been beaten with um, a Swiffer mop. So, and my neighbor who brought me to the hospital was disabled and he walked with the metal crutches. So they started thinking my injuries were from his metal crutches. And I, I would find out later that in the report, I was actually written up as a prostitute who came in with her pimp, which I don't know where they got any of that, but that was how they perceived me at that time. But because I didn't want to tell them what was really happening to me at home, And I didn't want my neighbor to get into any trouble when all he was doing was trying to help me. I ended up sneaking out of the hospital once the police left before they came back to my room. And I went home. And when I got home, Bryant caught me walking in the building. And that was when he grabbed my son and I got us back into the house. And for the next two weeks, he did not let us leave that house. Two weeks later, when I finally find another opportunity to leave because that was a year of a blizzard. So my son didn't have school. I had no excuses to get out of the house until the first day the school opened back up. And then I was able to get him to let my son go to school so that CPS wouldn't get called. I literally ran out of my house. I took nothing with me. I was able to get help from a neighbor. She called 911. And by the time I got to the hospital. Well, the police took me, but another thing was they gave me the decision. Do you want to ride in an ambulance or would you rather us just drive you in the car? And I said, I just wanted to ride in the car. I didn't want it to be a big scene in my neighborhood. They put me in the front of the car, not the back of the car. So very little things when you think about it, but made a huge difference. This officer got me to the hospital and I was met there immediately by Detective Wallace and a victim advocate from the police department. They were already waiting at bedside for me. And she reminded me of how we had met before and she remembered me, but she didn't hold any of that against me. And she wasn't standing over me in a way of like, I told you this was gonna happen. I told you so, what are you gonna do now? It was just, let's just take this minute by minute. You're here in the hospital, you're safe. If you don't feel safe to go back home, we can get you someplace safe to go. But let's just worry about this step by step. Let's first figure out how we're going to get to your son, pick him up from school. So she started to show me that this was about me as a person. This was not about her as a detective trying to make her case. They weren't thinking about the prosecution. It was just, we're worried about you as a person. We don't care about your past. We don't care how many times you went back. We don't even care if you might possibly go back. We're going to invest our time and energy into you right now. And that made a huge difference. Amanda, in this part of your story, and I think you were saying it's been 14 months, we've already seen the good, the bad, and the ugly in the system where there was no contact, no services, no reaching out in the first one. And we saw 
how quickly that went awry, where you were trapped with Bryant, you had to trust him more, or quite frankly, be more afraid of what he would do if you cooperated with the prosecution than if you cooperated with Bryant. And now we've seen through Detective Wallace how it can be done correctly, where it's explaining everything to you. It's having victim advocates waiting for you at the hospital. It's not being judgmental. It's really listening and providing options and resources. So we've gotten this 14 months. We've gotten this abuse that started in Virginia, although not really at a 7-Eleven. How do you end up with a case with Melissa here prosecuting it? Yeah, that was also interesting. And that goes back to giving Detective Wallace a ton of credit. When Bryant was actually arrested in Virginia, he had a packet of photos. And they were photos that my mother had taken of me on her little throwaway disposable Kodak um, camera. She had taken pictures of me when I was in the hospital in Prince George's County, even though I was not working with the police very well at that time either. My mother, she knew something wasn't right. And she wanted these pictures in case I ever decided to get enough strength to do what I needed to do. So Bryant had found those pictures. I didn't even know he had found them, but my mother was smart in that she made several copies of them. So even though he had the ones that were at my house, he was arrested with those. And Melissa was very concerned when she saw them because the photos do not look very good. I mean, you could tell I was beaten badly. And she asked him what these pictures were. And he, he told her, I love her. Like, these are pictures of my baby. She's beautiful. And she's like, she's in a hospital bed. I mean, my face was beaten to a pulp. So when she asked me about them, I told her, those are my pictures from Maryland. And I did not know that he had them. And then I told her about what happened in Maryland. So she eventually decided to reach out to Melissa in her office saying, I think you guys might have this open case because I had told her police had come and talked to me. Um, but I wasn't very cooperative with them. And I was very vague with them. Not that I was dishonest, but I was vague. So she reached out based on the photos and based on me explaining the photos to her, then reaches out to Melissa um, to talk about the Maryland case. Yeah, it was, it's definitely a one of a kind story. And I can say that out of all of the cases that I've prosecuted, this case is really stuck with me um, because of, you know, the, the nature of that assault. I remember, you know, those gas station attendants who found you testifying about how, you know, they, you know, how badly beaten you were. I mean, I saw, obviously saw those pictures and, and was able to use them. But I think what really has stuck with me is your, your story of survivorship, right? After all of those horrible things that Bryant did to you, you were able to get out, you were able to get that courage to leave and to testify against him. And I know it was his family did not make it easy for you. Virginia, they didn't make it easy for you. In Maryland, that sentencing was a sentencing that I will remember for all time. I've never had a defendant turn and, you know, speak directly to a victim and and tell them that they'll always be theirs. Um, So it's something that I'll remember, but we really want our listeners to know about the after, because the after, you know, it, it was putting your life back together, but there is an after. And so can you tell us just a little bit about what you've been doing, what happened after Bryant Jones went to prison? 
Yeah, I realized that, I mean, my background was in social work at that time. So I knew I was going to be working in the social work field. And I realized that, that I needed to do something with all my experiences, the good and the bad. I wanted to start helping other victims um, become survivors and get out of their relationships. I wanted to help the system start to hear from somebody. And I think um, people st- would look at me as like, you. and I've heard it a million times, you don't look like a typical victim. And I've had to call people out on that and say, I don't know what a typical victim looks like, but I am a, I'm a victim like anyone else. Neither do I. So if you ever figure out what a typical victim is supposed to look like, could you shoot a note to Melissa and myself? We'd love to know. I know. I mean, I'm sure if I came and sat with you guys for a week, no two people ever look alike in the cases that you guys see. So I don't know what that means either. But I just, I started realizing, and I I went through a lot of therapy. So that was helping. And in my therapy, I I was talking more about, I, this is going to be a healing journey for me for life, but I think I really am ready to get into this field and work with other survivors. And I got to a point where I did that and it wasn't triggering. It was continuing to heal me. But then I saw the system didn't just fail me. The system was just failing, period. I took opportunities. You know, I was training at the police academy. I made friends through Detective Wallace. And then I made friends through my judge who issued my protective order. And he was giving me opportunities to do trainings with lawyers and magistrates. And all these doors kept opening for me. And I was very grateful for that, that this story that when I was going through it, I felt like I really wasn't anybody to, this was just another case, another domestic violence victim that the police had to deal with. It didn't feel like I meant anything to any of them. And so I wanted to make my story as big as I could so that everybody else's story could also mean something. And that really helped me get into where I am today. I went back to school. Um, I decided to do my master's in social work. My entire graduate school research was based around domestic violence. So every class I found a way to make it on domestic violence, whether it's what's wrong with the system or looking at women who've killed their abusers, because through my journey, I've met all types of different people. And one of my closest friends today was a woman who was convicted of killing her abuser and went to prison for life for that. And I was like, this story means something. I need to figure this out. So I just kept learning where I wanted to go on my path. I've worked with the military. I've worked in a domestic violence shelter, in a transitional housing program, in the courts doing protective orders. Now I'm working in a trauma center where I only see domestic violence victims. So I, I keep finding like I'm, I'm breaking down the, the circle and I'm at full circle. And now today I'm at a point where I'm thinking my next step in my journey is going to really be to work with abusers, to understand the abusers, to understand their mindset. And I have been in contact, I've been put in contact with a man actually who murdered his wife. And he read one of my stories in the Washington Post and did a lot of work on his own from prison to find a way to get connected to me. So now I'm starting to learn other side of it. And I had to give myself a lot of time and space before I was ready for that because I didn't want to let myself be triggered or feel like I was being manipulated by this person. But I think it's it's been good because 
I work with victims and we feel, and I'm sure you guys feel it too. It's like you're pulling one person out of the river at a time, but like a hundred more are falling in after each one that you pull out. So I've challenged myself to find a way to make my macro work be with abusers while I can still be with victims because I understand them and they understand me. Wow. That you're looking to work with abusers in the future to break down intimate partner violence even more. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, Melissa and I do feel just like you said quite often that we'll get one person out and there's 10 to a hundred more right behind, but that's why we do this podcast. We know education is prevention. We know hearing from survivors like you that there's hope on the other side. There's joy on the other side. There's projects on the other side. And I want to get to those. I'm going to ask you a quick question, but I hate to say this, but you and Melissa left us on a huge cliffhanger. And I am sure all the listeners are just like me and want to know what was the outcome of the sentencing for Bryant Jones before we get to the next part, please. Should I let Melissa share that? I don't know. I, I mean, so he... Maryland um, received a 40-year sentence. He got 12 years, right, in Virginia? He had 15 in Virginia. 15 in Virginia. And the judge in Maryland ran that consecutive to his 15-year sentence in Virginia. So it was a, it was a pretty hefty sentence. And that's what happens when the system does it the right way. When we connect with services, we listen to survivors. We have survivors part of the actual justice system and not just somebody we call in on the day of trial. But now I am going to get to the question I wanted to ask, but I'm sorry, y'all needed to resolve resolve that cliffhanger for (laughs) us. So you talked a little bit about you're going to meet with this abuser, the person who killed his own spouse. And I I believe I was told you also have a project coming down with uh, the UK. So can you share a little bit about just what some of the projects are that you've got coming about in the next year or so? Yeah, so actually this weekend I'll be in DC. There's a film producer in the UK who's flying over here. She's working on a a documentary on domestic violence and what she's looking at is what is happening in the US. So she put this together where it's going to be victims. What does domestic violence in the United States look like? So they can kind of see what's happening in the UK. But she also took it another step and wanted to do Um, get into the mind of the perpetrator, which ironically, the same man who had found my article in the Washington Post probably five years ago was discovered by this this, um, film producer. And he was asked to be on this documentary. And then he gave her my name and told her my story. So he's going to be kind of helping people understand the mind of an abuser how did it get to the point where this man had been abusing his wife and then one day killed his wife and where um, his story took him over the years, how long he spent in prison because he is out at this time. I'll be doing my story though, nothing with the two of us connected um, for this same documentary. And that'll be this weekend. I'm not sure when that's actually supposed to air. So I'll have to get back to you guys once I know what the title of the documentary is going to be and when it would actually be ready for air. Well, I cannot wait. Every time we talk and text, I just feel so much hope that, you know, you're going to just, you make such a difference in people's lives. I know when we've presented, everyone is just always in awe of you. Thank you. All the time that we have for today. 
if you want to reach out to Amanda, you can check our podcast notes and there'll be a way to get a hold of her there. More information about intimate partner violence, please reach out to the National Domestic Violence Hotline at hotline.org or 1-800-799-SAFE. We will have links to all of that in the podcast notes. Amanda, thank you so much for joining us. And this is your time for any parting thoughts. Well, thank you both for letting me once again share my story. Again, I do encourage people to reach out to me. I love to connect. I love opportunities to hear other stories or hear what other people have going on. So I appreciate you guys opening that door for me. And um, if there's any follow-ups, because like I said, I know my story so well that I feel like I don't always do a great job of telling it, please feel free to reach out if, if people do get my email in the show notes. Thank you again, Amanda. It's been such a privilege to have you with us today. We are also going to link your Washington Post articles in the podcast notes so people can learn a little bit more about your story that way as well. We do encourage anybody who may be going through intimate partner violence and wants to reach out to somebody who's been there and come out the other side to please reach out to Amanda. She works with survivors every day. As always, if you like what you hear, please subscribe. And you can find us on social media at No Gray Zone RRC on Instagram or Twitter and No Gray Zone on Facebook. There are no excuses when it comes to sexual assault or not having the right response when it comes to working with domestic violence survivors. I'm just good at